Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell, and I'll be your host today. Carl Sagan once famously said, well, well, this is radio after all, maybe I should just let him say it. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Thank you very much. Actually, now that we've heard him say it, let, there's a really neat vocoded version of this quote, courtesy of the music group Symphony of Science. Here it is. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. And just in case you want to hear me say it myself, here it goes. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. So this is a statement that seems both profound and also absurd. And it's also something that can be said about anything from a cup of coffee to a bolt of lightning to a human being. None of these things would be here if it weren't for the fact that our universe exists. My guest today is Neil Shubin, a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist from the University of Chicago. Shubin is perhaps best known for his discovery of Tiktaalik, a critical fossil find that has shaped our understanding of the vertebrate water-to-land transition, or the evolution of tetrapods. But not only is he a gifted scientist, but he's also an excellent science writer. His first book, Your Inner Fish, explored the biological evolution of the human species, asking questions like, where did anatomical structures like our jaws and our limbs come from? In his latest book, The Universe Within, Discovering the Common History of Rocks, Planets, and People, Shubin asks even bigger questions, and he details the cosmological evolution of our species. But wait, cosmological evolution? What does that even mean? I wanted to um, follow a timeline of the history of the cosmos, mm -hmm. origin of the universe, origin of the planet, origin of the solar system, function and workings of the planet, and see how portions of our structure and our bodies relate to each of those events in cosmologic history. So that was the idea, just generalizing from there. One thing I was curious about is why as an evolutionary biologist, was Shubin writing about space? Well, it turns out that all roads lead back to Carl Sagan. And uh, because I've had an abiding interest ever since I was a kid in astronomy, and in fact, if I wasn't a paleontologist, I'd probably be an astronomer. Um, so I've always been interested in it. And, you know, it was hard as growing up as, as, as I did, you know, and seeing Carl Sagan and mm -hmm. Apollo moon missions, really not to think about the cosmos and the, the solar system uh, and about how important they are in our own history as a lineage, you know, and if you follow that lineage all the way from the atoms that make us. And so what this book was sort of an extension of um, Carl Sagan's, you know, great theme, which is, you know, we are stardust, mm -hmm. um, but then taking it to its logical extensions, right? I mean, that, 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 that history is manifest in our bodies uh, and it's seen in connections we have with everything from, you know, the orbits of Jupiter to the formation of the moon to, um, uh, to the workings of the atmosphere and the planet itself. Carl Sagan is one of my personal heroes, so... <laughs> you choose your heroes wisely. <laughs> Speaking of stardust, did you know that for every 400 million atoms of hydrogen I have in my body, 
I only have one atom of cobalt. And sadly, even though my tissue is made up of a massive amount of carbon and oxygen, it doesn't have any helium, which is the second most abundant atom in the universe. Where did these atoms come from? If you look at the history of our bodies, you'd sort of, the atoms that compose us, the material basis, you know, is largely derived from you know, the first million years after the Big Bang, which is the smallest atomic nuclei, hydrogen and its cousins, um, and to the stellar evolution processes, which include the fusion reactions that occur in diverse kinds of stars, and then the supernovae, which happened for a variety of reasons. And each one of those uh, processes combine nuclei you know, as we know in fusion reactions, you know, smaller bits make larger bits, but not, you know, the, the whole doesn't equal the sum of the parts that enormous amounts of energy are released. Um, so it's that combination that produces the periodic table that of, of matter in our universe and the periodic table of matter in our bodies. Um, the periodic table of matter in our bodies, that subset that exists in us, um, doesn't include unreactive elements, obviously, because, you know, we thrive by the hydrogen bonds and the diverse bonds that exist among uh, uh, among atoms, um, but also the you know electron trades that happen, which which much of our energy budgets are based on. So um, you know each of those particles arose after the Big Bang in the first million years. You know so after the Big Bang, you know you have the rapid expansion the period of where you have the rapid expansion of the universe, and then cooling to the extent where different parts of our universe that we you know, know and love come into being, right? First the forces, then the, you know, the matter versus antimatter balance. Fortunately, matter, you know, so there was a slight uh, imbalance there, and so we have matter and we exist, um, which is good, um, I hope. And then, um, uh, and, you know, then the subatomic particles, then the nuclei, then the smallest atoms, which are the hydrogen atoms and lithium and things like that. And then later recombining in stellar processes, but that took gravity. You know that took other larger forces to come into being, or larger entities. You know, so if you look in our bodies, you know we have a chemical and atomic structure that relates to the universe and the cosmos, and we have a biological structure that relates to the planet and its interactions uh, with uh, with the other planets in our solar system. So we've moved on from the atoms in our bodies, which are unimaginably tiny, to our solar system which is relatively big. So this made me curious, why is our solar system a particularly good place for life to form? Shubin had a really great answer for this. Well, it's, 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 it's not just our solar system, but it's our place in it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the Goldilocks phenomenon, which we all read about, you know, we're at the right distance from the sun uh, for the right balance of heat and size and mass uh, to allow liquid water and plate tectonics to occur, which provides the stability for life to evolve. I mean, life requires a degree of, it requires stability and change, but stability is a big piece of that. You know, we can't be like Venus, which is super hot. Uh, we can't be like other planets, which have, you know, uh, which have a fixed rotation where they have a hot and cold, you know, they have a dark side and a light side. So, you know, basically we are the right distance from the sun of the right sized planet for life to uh, have evolved. Now, when you think about our solar system, our place in that solar system mm -hmm. and where our planet formed is really dependent on the other planets that form there. Remember, um, the formation of the solar system is such that it's what you had is a dust cloud that was swirling the forming sun, and 
matter was accreting, I mean, the gravitational attraction of matter was accreting to produce the planets of our solar system. Um, but, you know, there's a competition for matter, you know, and the 12-ton gorilla here is Jupiter. That's the one that, you know, is most massive and exerts the largest gravitational pull on the, our planet. Mm -hmm. um, so that not only the formation of Jupiter not only influenced the size of our planet and the position of our planet, but it also influences the orbit of our planet in very regular ways, which have shaped, shaped much of biological evolution. I feel like I've read that Jupiter also attracts asteroids and things oh, to itself to protect the Earth in, in some way. Yeah, exactly. So there's asteroid belts and there's rotations of asteroids. So there are, and there may be a statistical properties of Jupiter that affect the, you know, the collision of asteroids on Earth, which have themselves affected evolution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you think about, there's some grand interconnections in space and biology. I mean, when we, when we think of as biologists, I mean, we, we see those connections, right? Well, when you're a biologist, you see the evolutionary connections among mammals, people, fish, worms, and flies. We work in them every day. Um, but in the same manner, we see, as we look deeper in time and broader in space, what we see are deeper, are deep connections that have influenced our evolutionary past with Jupiter and, and the moon and other places and other things like that. So. So I got pretty excited when Shubin mentioned the moon because, well, our moon is, is, is a little weird. It's really big compared to the size of our planet, and it gives us the tides, and, well, it's beautiful. But where did the moon come from, and how has it shaped life on our planet? Well, the moon is, I mean, let's just think about how important the moon is, other than just, you know, the romantic, you know. <laughs> um, the... Um, the moon affects the tides of Earth, so we are a tidal planet, right? And much of Earth has that rhythm in us. The, the, the moon defines many of the basic rhythms that life lives by. Hmm. I mean, the tidal and monthly rhythms, but as well as the diurnal rhythms. Because the spinning of the Earth is obviously the light-dark cycle. Mm -hmm. But that is matched because of the physical relationship of the rotation of the moon and the spinning of the Earth. There is a you know, because of conservation of angular momentum and energy and so forth, the orbit of the moon affects the spinning of the Earth. They're locked in mm -hmm. a tidal, and they're locked in a particular way. So what that means is the cycles that we are all know and love, the daily cycles, the monthly cycles, the tidal cycles, really come about because of the Earth-Moon system. Mm -hmm. And it's even probably more than that if you believe one of the consensus stories, mm -hmm. theories, hypotheses for the origin of the moon. There are a number of reigning hypotheses for the origin of the moon. The one that seems to have the most empirical support at the moment is the, the, the big whack, right? The idea that um, a large Mars-sized asteroid hit the Earth back in the early evolution of the Earth about 4.4 billion years ago, 4.5 billion years ago, um, and that spalled off dust, both you know, vaporized that asteroid as well as vaporized crust of the Earth, mm -hmm. which later congealed as the moon. Um, and there's a fair amount of evidence to support that. Mm -hmm. You know, the chemistry of moon rocks, the chemistry of, and the comparison of the chemistry of earth rocks, properties of the orbit of the earth. But once, one of the sequelae of that theory is that not only did the, the moon come about in that big threat, but the tilt of the earth did too. Mm. You know, so in the, if that's the case, then the origin of the moon is related not only to the cycles that we live by with, you know, the diurnal cycles and daylight, uh, the tidal and monthly, but also the seasons. You know, so those are the fundamental clocks inside our bodies, and, and all animals are tuned to those in many ways. Some very subtle, some very profound and deep. You know, um, and that's where the Earth-Moon system lies in us. Um, the moon is unusually big for a moon. Oh, it's as huge. As far as we 
are aware of. The yeah, and it's that man exactly compared to Jupiter and Saturn relative to the size of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's one of the that's one of the uh, supporting arguments, you know, with the mathematical models that lie behind the uh, the big thwack theory. Mm-hmm. It accounts for the, the 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 mass of both bodies. What did the thwacking? Was it an asteroid? Or yeah, Mars sized asteroid. asteroid. Yeah, you remember, you know, the the early congealing solar system was, you know, dust surrounding a, mm-hmm. you know, the sun that, you know, ever larger clumps are forming. Well, those clumps are knocking into each other, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, this is thought to be one of the consequences of those knocks. Um, but, you know, one thing we learned about in biology, right, it was one of the biology 101. What do you learn about? You learn about circadian cycles. You learn about circadian clocks, mm-hmm. the genes, period, and timeless, and all these. You know, those are really fundamental properties of animal life, you know, and, you know, the rise and fall of, of DNA and protein and DNA activity through the functions of these diverse genes in flies and people and, and hamsters, um, you know, happens on a diurnal cycle. You know, so, so much of our biology is tuned uh, to these cycles, and we take a lot of it for granted. And one thing I wanted to do in a general book was to tell those stories, mm. which are kind of obvious to a working scientist. You know, we all learn about circadian rhythms. Mm-hmm. And we all learn about how fundamental they are to molecular biology. Um, but most people don't know that. And most people don't know how you know, much of our biology is, has, has clock-like, uh, clock-like properties at the base of it, including much of the physiology of our organs. That's so. true. It's something that we understand intuitively, but we might not think about. Really. Yeah. And I'll make you a bet. I'll make you in 10 years' time. I think chronobiology will be a very active field of medicine. Because you know, the more we look, the more we find that you know, that uh, our health depends on these things, you know. And so, and again, thank you the moon, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, <laughs> moon. Yeah. It used to be much closer to the Earth. Yeah, it's moving away. So, the, 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 that's another argument for the big thwack theory. The mm-hmm. moon is moving away. Uh, is, is getting more distant with each passing day. And as a consequence of that, and as a consequence of the relationship of the Earth to the moon, uh, the Earth's orbit is, is uh, the Earth's spinning is slowing. Mm-hmm. So, today is two milliseconds shorter than yesterday which is two milliseconds shorter than the day before. Amazing. Yeah. And if you calculate that, it turns out we've lost, you know, the, the days are, are getting longer and the years are getting shorter in terms of number of days, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you can calculate that using certain fossils, actually. Fossil corals have little cycles inside of them where you can tell them the light-dark cycles and you can count them up and you can see that, wow, there were, you know, there were more days in a year 400 million years ago and the reason why there were more days in a year is not because the year is longer in any great sense, you know, but it's because uh, the Earth uh, was spinning faster then. Hmm. I also really like to imagine how big the tides must have been when the moon, the moon was closer. Close. Exactly. And uh, there are rocks called rhythmites where you can look at see the tides and you can see their rhythms. Mm-hmm. The one thing we can't do is provide a, it would be cool to do, to see what the relative height of those tides were, yeah. you know, back in the Devonian compared to today. We can look at their cyclicity, mm-hmm. which is great because then we can compare that. Um, and there's some cool rocks even in the Midwest where we can see those, like tombstones uh, in Indiana. But um, but uh, we don't know that we don't know. And we could predict how big those tides would be, mm-hmm. but it'd be great to be able to see it in the rocks, you know. Yeah. But we can. So sadly, it was time to move away from the moon and return to the Earth. So I asked Shubin to describe one of the most influential geological events that's occurred in the history of our planet and how that's really shaped life here on Earth. Yeah, so if you think about, well, there are many. I mean, in terms of, the, in terms of those that have affected life, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, uh, 
One take one that's fairly obvious to all of us, uh, and that is um, the glacial interglacial cycles. Okay. That is, you know, you cannot be an evolutionary biologist working in temperate forests in Canada or wherever <laughs> and, you know, not think about the glaciers in terms of understanding the, the glacial interglacial periods define, you know, the waxing, the, the movement of life, the evolution of life in certain parts of the earth. Mm -hmm. Northern Europe, uh, Midwest, I mean, it's, uh, um, it, it's such a major factor in evolution, including human evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and I think... Uh, when you uh, when you look at not only the distribution of animals but major selective pressures on them, the glacier and glacial cycles have been one of the dominant sort of forces and print overprints on those environmental. Well, those, as we know, are in part related to orbital variation. Hmm. That is, our planet um, has an orbit that varies from circular to more elliptical. Mm -hmm. The tilt and wobble of the Earth vary, and these things have cycles. Hundred thousand. So the axis of the Earth wobbles a little. Yeah, exactly. And these happen at regular intervals. So there's a hundred thousand year cycle of eccentricity mm. in a circuit. There's a forty thousand and twenty thousand year cycles superimposed on that of wobble and tilt as well. Well, you think about those patterns, and if you superimpose them, um, they produce a prediction, a quantitative prediction of when you would have likely glacial and interglacial periods. Mm. Based on those orbital properties, you'd have different amounts of heat, you know, transporting through the Earth in different ways. Um, and as a consequence of that, uh, a prediction was made back in the, you know, several decades ago um, that the orbital variation should match largely the waxing and waning of the glaciers we see, you know, the interglacial period. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that cycle is largely, there is, a, there is an effect of the orbital variation. Mm -hmm. Some of these cycles have a very dominant effect on the glacial and interglacial periods. Wow. Yeah, and that was a really triumph, that was a great triumph of, uh, of uh, geoscience mm -hmm. uh, back in the 70s and 80s. You know, showing that the the cyclicity predicted by what are called Milankovitch cycles mm -hmm. matches to a an order a first order of approximation to the glacial and interglacial periods, wow. um, which is really good. There's still a lot of puzzles in there because it's complex because it's not just the orbits, but it's also how heat is transferred in the Earth. You know, it's those ocean currents and tidal currents, but there's still a signal, a, a very noticeable signal to these. Um, anyway, um, so the waxing wind in glaciers has you know is related in part to the uh, orbital variation of the Earth in over regular cycles. Well, that itself, what drives that orbital variation? Well, it's the interaction of our planet with Jupiter. Oh, right, Jupiter of course. Again. Right, what else would do it? Right, it's yeah. Jupiter again. Mm -hmm. So, in a very real sense, if you follow the chain of logic, mm -hmm. it makes total sense each step along the way. Oh, yeah, you know, evolution and glacial interglacial periods, you can see that. Glacial interglacial periods, yeah, we can see how that's related to an orbital variation. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, an orbital variation, how that's related to Jupiter. But when you take the endpoints that our planet's interaction with Jupiter has affected biological evolution, <laughs> it seems utterly strange. Yeah. But then when you follow each particular step along that chain of logic, it's like, wow, okay, I believe that. Yeah, you see. You so see that's one of the stories I love to tell because that really directly shows how, in a very tangible way, biological evolution is something we can actually see around us, including in our own bodies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, relates to uh, orbital variation, which relates to Jupiter. But there are others as well. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about, um, if you believe some theories, then there's one very powerful hypothesis out there, controversial, but supported by a lot of data, uh, that is the rise of the Tibetan Plateau, mm. you know, uh, mm -hmm. when India smashed into Asia. Uh, that, was a, that was a climate changing event, and that climate changing event really affected evolution in certain, certain major ways. And that's another story that shows. Uh, the relationship between mountain building and continental movement, the atmosphere and climate of the Earth and biological evolution.
the key thing, the one that I wanted to drive home in the book, is that there are great connections that we see, that we know as scientists that have a lot of evidence to support them. And then when you put them all together, they really take you to kind of mind-blowing places. Yeah. You know, that mountain building may be related to, and continental movement may be related to evolution and climate and that, that may have influenced our evolution as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, that Jupiter <laughs> has such a great impact on us. Um, you know, and that the moon is so important. I mean, when you see these things, the evidence is there to support it, but it's kind of like, oh, wow. I mean, when you think about it. So I loved writing about it in the book. Yeah, it really drives home the improbable nature of our existence. Mm. It depends on so many of these things just being perfect. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and you know, right. It took so many things for, you know, to be perfect, to be, be sitting here with you today, right? Everything just had to go perfect. Uh, My son yeah, had to get true. better. <laughs> you know, I had to be at the right, you know, I mean? yeah. so you know what I mean? You can say that about everything that exists, but because um, it's, you know, everything, when you add up all the events that had to happen, it's just so unusual. It's the craziest thing in the world that I, you know, actually walked to work today. <laughs> right. A fame, Richard Feynman used to say, tell a story like that. Well, I think it's a nice attitude to have. Mm-hmm. It seemed fitting that my question about geological events on Earth led right back to the Moon and Jupiter. But thinking about these cosmological events, the Big Bang, exploding stars, the vastness of our universe, made me wonder what the future might hold for our peculiar, bipedal, pie-loving species. I asked Shubin what his thoughts were on this. I think we're screwed. Okay, so, um, uh, in, a, in a word. Yeah. Um, oh, like, no, but I mean in the long time ago. I mean, it's frankly, you know, um, like our planet's doomed. We're gone. It's done. And it's not because of human effects. It's because the sun's going to go red dwarf. Yeah. It's going to bake all the water off the planet. Mm-hmm. So, just like individuals are born, live, and die, this planet is going to be born, live, and die. It, there, there's going to become a point when it's no longer habitable for life. Right. Now, we're not going to be here, and, and probably our species won't be, but... You know, and indeed, our old, our solar system and galaxy has a life too. So everything, you know, is born, lives, and dies. They're all individuals. Um, so in that sense, yeah, it's dismal. <laughs> now maybe Enceladus, you know, moon of Saturn, or you know, Europa, moon of Jupiter would you know be habitable for life, but certainly the Earth won't be at that time. Mm-hmm. Now before then, the relevant question is, um, what's the pro- prognosis? Um, well, again, let's just take another time scale. You know, one thing you learn as a paleontologist is that every species goes extinct. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a fact, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, species are born, live, and die, and ours uh, will have a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, it's just what that end will be, you know? I mean, will that end be transmutation into another species, you know, or a set of species? Or will it be, you know, extinction? I have no clue about that. Now, before that happens, let's talk about that. I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic in the short term. Mm. So, I'm long term, I'm, you know, it's kind of dismal. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the short term, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we um, have is um, the power to change our biology um, and the power to, um, uh, to really impact the planet in both negative and positive ways. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it uh, does offer some, you know, if you're an optimist like I am, it could offer some, uh, some hope. That is, you know, just as medicines have been important for diseases, I mean, antibiotics and, mm-hmm. and their eyeglasses and so forth, that, you know, we've been able to extend and enrich our lives by technology. I see that increasing. Now, that's not to say that's the panacea, but frankly, if you were to look, you know, if you were to ask the question, you know, if we were to come back in a time machine, you and I, in 3,000 years, mm-hmm. and sort of look around and see, 
what do people look like and mm -hmm. what do they do? What guides their performance? What guides how long they live, how they think, how they run, how they ride a bicycle? Um, it's going to be technology, right? I mean, it will be drugs and devices that are going to be extending our performance as a species. Mm -hmm. And I think we're only going to get better than that, right? Neurobiology, I mean, as we learn more about the brain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> neurobiology, as we learn more about cell death and aging and mm -hmm. disease. I mean, it's just inevitable that the quality of life will increase. Now, that doesn't mean we as people won't find a way to screw it up. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's not just technology, but it's access to technology uh, that'll make a difference. And we, we stand a very real chance of living in a world where we will cause a speciation event, if you will, um, among different kinds of humans based on technology. Um, because if you think of a world of haves and have-nots, mm -hmm. we already have a world that's kind of shaped like that. Yeah. The potential of one class of humans is very different from the potential of another class of humans. The cause of death of one class of humans is very different from another set of classes of humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, most human beings die of infectious diseases, it's things that actually aren't that common in a society that we live in, mm -hmm. you know, which, you know, the, the, our diseases are diseases of old age, you know, cancers and cardiac problems and things like that. It's not, Diabetes. you know, malaria yeah. and, uh, and diarrhea that, you know, that will, that, that kills us. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we're already seeing that impact. And I think unless we take care, we will uh, see an ever increasing divide. Now that need not happen because technology does have a way of getting cheaper you know, and more accessible. That's I mean, true. Yeah. if you go to, you know, I just worked in Ethiopia a few months ago. Everybody has a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Everybody, you know, I mean, they're more plugged in than we are in some ways. I mean, um, because, uh, you know, so technology has gotten significantly cheaper. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not painting an entirely dark picture because I'm, I'm just painting an unpredictable fi uh, picture. Right. You know, I'm, you know. I'm, Universe is an unpredictable place. Yeah. And that's what you learn about evolution. You know, mm -hmm. it just doesn't, you know, you kind of know what the parameters are going to be, but I can't tell you what it's going to look like in mm -hmm. 4,000 years. You never know when an yeah. asteroid is going to whack us, us again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, here's hoping that we don't get thwacked anytime soon. Well, at least not until the next iPad is released. But in the meantime, I highly recommend Neil Shubin's latest book, The Universe Within, Discovering the Common History of Rocks, Planets, and People. There's really just so much mind-blowing science in this book, and it, it really demonstrates how interconnected our universe is. Well, right now it's almost 8 a.m. here in Chicago, and I know exactly what I want for breakfast. Apple pie, fresh from the universe's oven. Thank you so much for listening, and if you want to hear more, check us out on grox.net, Facebook, and Twitter. From everyone here at the Grox Science Show, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Forrest Golden, I'm Joanna Rowell. Have a wonderful week, and keep on grokking. We're all connected to each other biologically, to the Earth chemically, to the rest of the universe atomically. I think nature's imagination is so much greater than man's. Never gonna learn. Relax, 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 relax. We live in a between universe where things change alright, but according to patterns, rules, or as we call them, laws of nature. I'm this guy standing on a planet. Really, I'm just a speck. I'm just a speck compared with a star. The planet is just another speck. To think about all of this, to think about the vast 
emptiness of space. Billions and billions of stars, billions and billions of specks. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff, and we are away of a cosmos to know itself across. The sea of space, the stars are others. We have traveled this way before, and there is much to.